19. Genesis chapter 19 in the Scripture. Genesis chapter 19. And as you're turning there, all the children that are four years of age up through third grade, all the children can be dismissed downstairs through this front door. All the young people can be dismissed four years old up through third grade. All the children that are four years old up through third grade can be dismissed. And as they're being dismissed, if you would stand with me, we're going to say Psalm 116.16. We've been memorizing that verse this week. Psalm 116 and verse 16. All the children, four years of age up through third grade, you can follow the adults right downstairs for children's Bible time. Well, we've had a good time memorizing this verse, haven't we? Psalm 116 and verse 16. What an encouragement it's been to my heart. And it's an encouragement for me, and I know it is for your pastor, to see you memorizing the Scripture. I hope that you'll come to him on occasion and say, Pastor, I've been memorizing the Scripture. Here's a new verse I've got. Isn't it a good verse? That's going to be an encouragement to him and a challenge and a help. And I hope that you're working in your heart and in your life to encourage the man of God. Psalm 116.16, let's say the reference, the verse, and the reference three times. Let's begin. Psalm 116.16, O Lord, truly, I am thy servant. I am thy servant and the son of thine handmaid. Thou hast loosed my bonds. Psalm 116.16, O Lord, truly, I am thy servant. I am thy servant and the son of thine handmaid. Thou hast loosed my bonds. Psalm 116.16 O Lord, truly, I am Thy servant. I am Thy servant and the son of Thine handmaid. Thou hast loosed my bonds. Psalm 116.16 Father, thank You so for letting us be Your servants. Lord, I pray that we would with all of our hearts seek to fulfill that duty. Lord, I pray that those here who have gathered that are saved and maybe they're just a little discouraged tonight. The devil's been all over their case today. I pray that you'd encourage their hearts and lift their spirits and point them to Jesus and to the answer and help them to know that you'll never leave them nor forsake them. Then, Father, I pray for Christians who've come that are wandering. They're wandering from you and and truthfully giving your name a bad rap all over their their sphere of influence. Lord, do a work in their heart. Draw them back to you. Help them to realize our life is too short to waste on self and sin. And then, Father, I pray for anyone in this place who has never been saved. A man, woman, boy, girl, Lord, whoever they may be. I pray that they would hear the gospel and tonight believe the gospel and be saved from their sins. Lord, break the bonds, Lord, I pray. And Lord, I pray that they wouldn't get in their car tonight. I pray that they wouldn't get on the highway. They wouldn't risk life and limb and worse eternity simply by rejecting you. I pray that tonight they'd receive you by faith. You please, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would do this work. Holy Spirit, we lean upon you. Do what no human could do so that no human can claim the credit. And we'll thank you for all that you accomplish now. Because it's in Jesus' sweet name that we pray all of these things. Amen. You may be seated. Near my house in North Carolina, I saw a sign some time ago. Located just outside a drive-in movie theater. It was advertising the movies that were showing that week. One title in particular caught my attention. Now, I want you to make no mistake about it. I despise Hollywood and all that it represents. And I think every good Christian ought. There's no way that you can be a friend of God and a friend of Hollywood at the same time. James chapter 4, the Bible says, Friendship with the world, is enmity with God. And I want to say, by the grace of God, I've never been into a movie theater, and by His grace, I'm not going to go. I believe it's ungodly and sinful to support a Hollywood industry that would love to shut places like Lighthouse Baptist Church down, that that despises and works very vigorously against everything that we stand for and everything the Bible promotes And I'm praying that that you'll make the decision as a conviction in your life that you're just not going to have anything to do with with Hollywood. But just the same, I I saw this title and it caught my eye 
it read, drag me to hell. I thought, what in the world would possess someone to make a movie in the first place, but then to title it by such an awful, awful heading? Drag me to hell. Obviously, it shows and describes the ignorance and foolishness of the movie industry. Anyone with a sliver of Bible knowledge would never, never utter those words, much less title a movie that will be seen by millions. Drag me to hell. Drag me to hell. I went online for just a brief moment or so to look up what this movie was about. And it didn't take me but a minute to get out of that website because it has occultic and vile overtones. It certainly describes just exactly what it titles. Drag me to hell. Anybody with any kind of knowledge of hell would never even utter those words. But then, ladies and gentlemen, as I was mulling over those words and thinking about thinking about that title. I began to consider the powerful influence of a dad. It's one that seems to be taken for granted in our day. It's one that seems to be mocked and ignored and in many cases, replaced by the Hollywood industry and by the wicked feministic agenda. I begin to think about a dad's influence. Oh, how powerful it is. Oh, how great it is. Statistics tell us of a group of prisoners held, held in, in prison... And they were given the opportunity to get a free card to send to their dad on Father's Day. All of them were given the same opportunity to get a free card, write it and stamp it and send it to their mom on Mother's Day. Many multiplied hundreds of prisoners took the opportunity to send a card to their mom. Do you know how many took the opportunity to send a card to their dad? Zero. All the power of a dad's influence. And as I begin to think of the power of a dad's influence, young lady on the front row, please don't talk during the preaching. As I begin to think about the power of a dad's influence, I want to put together tonight and preach to you a message that I've entitled, Daddy! Daddy! Don't drag me to hell. Daddy! Daddy! Don't drag me to hell. You said, preacher, why such a title? Isn't it repulsive to think of? A mom or a dad who would have born and bred and natural affection for their children, dragging them, kicking and screaming down a mountainous path only to drop them into a fiery pit? Isn't that a repulsive thought to think of a parent hurting or harming a child? A few years ago, there was a lady who had five children and she drowned all five of them in her bathtub at home. Isn't that repulsive to think of a parent causing any harm to their child? But you hear me, parents all across this nation and some in this state and even sadly some in our Bible believing churches by their own foolishness, by their own neglect by their own willful resistance to the Word of God, are literally or spiritually dragging their children by whatever they can grab down to drop them into the pit of hell. And tonight, if I can, I'd like to stand and wave my arms and somehow plead with parents in this room to do what is right 
by your children. Somehow, I'd like to plead with dads to assume the role and responsibility of a dad and not be the deadbeat that this world seems to glorify and not be the whoremonger that this world seems to commend and not be someone who is consumed with riches and consumed with things and consumed with materialism that this world seems to promote. I'm pleading with dads tonight to take up the banner and the mantle of fatherhood and be the dad that God intends for you to be. But I'm not just speaking to dads. Because every single person in this room bears a great deal of influence. Moms bear a great deal of influence. And it could be that in your case, it's not the dad who is exerting influence away from God, but it's the mom who by her own neglect or by her own rebellion or by her own stubbornness is literally grabbing hold of her children in an unthinkable sort of way and dragging her children down to the depths of hell and dropping them over the pre- it could be there's a, a brother who is dragging some some other brother or sister to hell by your influence. I'm preaching to you tonight on this subject. Daddy, daddy, don't drag me to hell. Daddy, don't drag me to hell. And I want us to go to five simple passages in the Bible that will show us five graveyards. And from those graveyards and from those deaths, we can literally or nearly hear the children as they cry to their parents. Daddy, daddy, don't drag me to hell. The first is found in Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19, when God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice please Genesis 19 and verse 20. Genesis 19 and verse 20. It says, And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now. Genesis 18 and verse 21. I will go down now and see whether they've done it altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me. And if not, I will know. So he sent his two angels in Genesis 19 down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Indeed, things were as God saw them from his heavenly throne. And now he's going to bring judgment. Genesis 19 and verse 12. These men, these angels appeal to Lot, who was the carnal Christian living in Sodom. It says, and the men said unto Lot, hast thou here any besides son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters and whatsoever thou hast in this city, bring them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord and the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. Notice Genesis 19 and verse 23. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities of the pl- of all, uh, and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. So in essence, what happened was God said, I'm going to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he sent his angels as his witnesses. And then his angels saw the wickedness of the city and they carried out the commission or the command of God. And they said to Lot, get all your children and all your family and get them out of the city. And so then later, the Bible says in verse 23 that the Lord rained from heaven fire and brimstone down upon Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed these two cities. Did you know that in the place of Sodom and Gomorrah today, there are still One after another, hundreds in the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah, pillars of salt as monuments to the judgment of God. Thousands of years from the fact, thousands of years from the moment that God destroyed these cities, they are still standing as a testimony to a holy God and to a judging God who hates sin. But God was merciful. He sent these angels, though he did not have to, down into the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said to these that lived there, Lot, and those that were part of his family, get out and get your family out. Notice, please, Genesis chapter 19 again and verse 20, verse 12. He says, hast thou here any besides son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters and whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out Of this place. And Lot did. Verse 14. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place. 
for the Lord will destroy this city. Now, ladies and gentlemen, they did not leave. Lot's children did not flee. It was just Lot, his wife, and his two daughters that escaped. His wife disobeyed God's command and turned back to look at Sodom and Gomorrah. And God judged her and turned her into a pillar of salt. His two daughters were the only family members he had, and they shamed him so in the cave outside of Zoar. And the Bible says here that all the rest of his family did not leave and did not flee the judgment of God. And as the fire and the brimstone falls from God out of heaven and crashes down upon the city and there's a plume of smoke and there's the acrid smell of fire and brimstone as it comes down to destroy this, this city that had thumbed its nose in the face of God, I can hear the cries faintly amongst the thousands that are weeping and the thousands that are crying for their lives. I can hear the cries of at least Three daughters and three sons-in-laws and perhaps three sets of families with children. I can hear them as they cry faintly from the city as the fire begins to burn and the brimstone destroys around them. Daddy, daddy, don't drag me to hell by your worldly desire. You see, Lot had a rich Christian heritage. Lot had a strong family that believed in God. Lot had an uncle that we now know today to be Abraham. He was a friend of God. He was a man who was righteous in the sight of God because of his faith. He was a man who had placed his trust in the God of the Bible. And Abraham followed God. But Lot, somewhere along the line, turned away. And Lot departed. Be it ever so small a departure at the beginning. Later on down the road, the departure was very great. And Lot went and he pursued Sodom and Gomorrah. He wanted the pleasure and the acclaim and the accolades and the applause of this world. And he got all that he pursued. And he got all that he wanted. And now, while he went down to Sodom, some believe he met and married his wife in Sodom. Some believe that she was a resident of Sodom. That's why perhaps she turned back to look with great longing at Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Bible says that God sent judgment. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you tonight, there was nothing that marked Lot's life except worldly desire. I want to ask, are you a worldly Christian? Living for yourself, living for the things of this world, living to amass to yourself material pleasure and material treasure, and that is all. Are you a worldly Christian? The Bible says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life are not of the Father, but are of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Jesus said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is there will your heart be also. The Bible tells us in Romans 12 and verse 2, be not conformed to this world. It tells us that Demas, one of Paul's close associates, hath forsaken me having loved this present world. The Bible tells us that we are that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. I want to ask, is your life marked by worldly desire? Lot sure was. Did you know that Lot was a believer? Lot had placed his faith in the God of the Bible. The scripture says he was a just man. It says he vexed his righteous soul from day unto day with their unlawful deeds in seeing and hearing. I'm here to tell you tonight that Lot literally drug his children to hell by his worldly desire. Look, please, again at Genesis 19 and verse 14. Look at it. It says, and Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters and said, up, get you out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. Would you look this way? I believe there's a time in every man's life when all of a sudden he wakes up. When all of a sudden he stops believing a lie and he starts believing a truth, the truth. But for some, it's just a little bit too late. And I believe in this case that Lot really sincerely wanted to rescue his children. 
I believe as he looked into the faces of these angels, he knew they were heavenly messengers. He knew that they weren't balking. He knew that they weren't somehow pulling his leg. He knew that they were telling the truth when they said, we're going to judge this city. Get all of your family out. And I can see Lot as he gets his keys and he runs out to his fancy uh, Ferrari and he gets into his Ferrari and he speeds down the blocks of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and he gets out and he comes up to the door of his first daughter and son-in-law. And he pounds on the city door. It was no doubt late in the evening. It was late when these messengers came. Late when they were tried, when they were uh, nearly attacked by the men of the city. It was late. And now Lot, he runs down, pounds on the door of his first daughter and says, Honey, honey, you gotta get out! The judgment of God is coming. The Lord's going to judge this city. Honey, you've gotta get out! I love you! Please, please, leave with me and my family and, and the rest of the family tonight. What? Dad, is that you? Are you actually? What's the matter, Dad? Come on inside. Please, please. Are you feeling okay? Is is everything all right? You're kind of talking funny. Judgment? God? We never hear you talk about God unless you're taking his name in vain. Now, now Dad, sit, sit down. Maybe you've been just working a little too hard lately. Things at work just aren't, 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 aren't as comfortable as they ought to be. No, no, I've got angels at my house. And they said the judgment of God is going to come. Sweetheart, come, come, come here and get a load of Dad. He's kind of flipped out. Oh, I've got to go to the next place. Then he bounds out into the dark Sodom night. He gets into his Ferrari and speeds down to the next house where his daughter and son-in-law live. And he pounds on the door and maybe his son-in-law comes and says, Hey, Dad, well, what you doing? I, I, we're not having a party, but you're welcome to come on in and have a beer. Is that what you want? No, no. The judgment of God is coming. I've got angels at my house. And they said that Sodom is going to be destroyed and Gomorrah is going to be destroyed. You've got to get out. <laughs> judgment? <laughs> That's kind of a funny joke. Hey, sweetheart, your dad's here. And he's telling us that the judgment of God is coming. That's pretty good, isn't it? Well, come on inside, dad. Well, what's the matter with you? you something wrong? I was, what was it? Did you flip, flip your lid? Why, why are you acting kind of strange? Oh, no, I've got to go to the next place. He knows that time is short. And so he runs back and gets in his Ferrari and speeds down a few other city side streets. And he jumps out to the most tender of all of his daughters. And he thinks maybe she'll have some sense. And he pounds on the door and he says, honey, you got to leave. Get your husband and get the grandkids and you got to leave. The judgment of God is coming. Come on in out of the street, dad. You're making a ruckus. You're going to rake up the neighbors. Well, what's wrong with you? What is this? Is mom been treating you all right? Is, is, is everything okay at home? Why is this so strange, this activity? Judgment? God, look at the last verse phrase of verse number 14. When he cried and said, up, Get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. The Bible says, but he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. They found out in moments that Daddy Lot wasn't joking. And now I can hear these daughters I can hear them calling each other on their cell phones. I can hear them as they gather their children around and huddle in the safest place, maybe in the basement of the cellar, as the fire and brimstone falls from God out of heaven and the whole city of Sodom and Gomorrah are decimated. I can see Lot as he stops. The angel said, don't look back. Maybe that's why Lot's wife looked back. Because they could hear the cries of their children. I can hear Lot and see him as he stops on the road and as his ears hear a faint cry. Daddy! Daddy! Don't drag me to hell by your worldly desire. I have a very dear friend in the ministry. He is an evangelist as I and has been for several years. And we were talking some months back. He said, Dwight, when I went into evangelism 45 years ago, he said it would not be a strange thing for us to see 40, 50, 100 people saved in a week-long revival meeting at a church. He said that was common back in the 60s and the 70s to see dozens of people come to Christ. 
He said, now we get excited if five or 15 people get saved in a revival meeting. I said, what's the difference? I said, what do you think is the difference? He said, I don't know. I'm sure there are many factors, but one stands out. He said, the church today is full of a desire for materialist materialism. Things satisfy money. That's the, the real object. I'm too busy to come to church and I'm too busy to honor God and I'm too busy to seek after the Lord. Too busy until one day you won't have anything to do but seek him. And in the bosom of hell, while you're crying for mercy, it will be just too late. Daddy, don't drag me to hell by your worldly desire. I want you to think of it in your terms tonight. Listen. Not just Lot's terms. I want you to think about your children, your sons, your daughters, your younger brothers, your younger sisters, your family, someone that you have great influence on. And I want you to hear them as they cry your name and say, don't, please don't drag me to hell by your worldly desire. Ah, but there's another grave that we must visit. Another person who's died. I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Leviticus chapter 10. Would you? Exodus 32 and Leviticus 10 simultaneously. Exodus 32, the second book in the Bible. Exodus 32 and Leviticus chapter 10. Exodus 32 and Leviticus 10. We'll start with Leviticus chapter 10. In Leviticus chapter 10, we find two sons. We first mentioned the daughters of Lot. Now we find two sons. Their names, Nadab and Abihu. They're priests in the service of the Lord. They're men who are to worship and lead the children of God in the worship of the Lord. And Nadab and Abihu in verse number 1 of Leviticus chapter 10. The sons of Aaron took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. Now, it's interesting to study the word strange in the Bible. Usually we hear it mentioned about the strange woman, and that means she's strange to the things of God and strange to that which is true and holy and right. In other words, it doesn't fit. Strange to God, strange to the things of God means like it fits like oil and water. And now in Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 1, we find these two priests, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of the first high priest Aaron, and they're offering strange fire, which the Lord commanded not. What does this mean? Well, we're not exactly sure what it means. It could mean that they breached what God had already told them. It could mean that they presumptuously thought they could offer the fire any way they wanted. It could mean that they didn't know exactly what God wanted and they went ahead of God to offer however they wanted worship before the Lord. And Nadab and Abihu put incense. By the way, the instructions on how to burn the incense and to offer this fire had not yet been given. And I personally believe that Nadab and Abihu were presuming that they knew what was best in the way of worshiping God and they didn't have to consult the Lord as to how they were to approach Him. But whatever the case may be, this was fire that was not to be offered. And they put coals in a censer and they brought that censer and they put it upon the altar of incense within the veil of the tabernacle and offered strange fire which the Lord commanded not. Now, I don't know exactly how the conversation went, but I like to imagine, will you allow me that courtesy? I like to think that Nadab and Abihu were having some kind of conversation that may have went like this. Nadab says, Abihu, come on, we need to get this fire burnt so that we can have a good night relaxing out on the town tonight. And Abihu says, well, Nadab, I don't know. I don't know if this is the time for us to do this. And, and, and the Lord hasn't given us any instruction concerning the matter. And maybe we just need to wait and wait, wait for the Lord's guidance. We, we can't be approaching him any old way. Oh, Abihu, you're such a stick in the mud. Why can't you just get over your rules and regulations? And can't you get over how you approach God? It doesn't matter how we worship Him. We can worship Him traditionally. We can worship Him in a contemporary way. The fact is, God doesn't really care if we just offer a little blended worship. And we'll have a good bit of rock music mixed in with the old hymns of the faith. And it doesn't really matter to God. Abihu, don't be such a square. Come on, put the fire on the altar. And let's worship the Lord and get the people to do the same. 
a boy who maybe thinks, I don't know, Nadab, I know you want to go out in the town tonight and I know you've got big plans, but, but maybe we just ought to let, let the Lord lead in this and maybe we ought to wait for Dad. And Nadab says, Dad, are you kidding? Why, Dad doesn't care how we approach God. Remember the golden calf? The golden calf. Exodus 32, would you turn there? Keep your finger in Leviticus 10 and look at Exodus 32 and notice what the Bible says. In Exodus 32, the Bible tells us of a time when Moses and Joshua were up on the mountain. Even so, Aaron and the 70 elders had gone up on the mountain. But then God said, I want to talk with Moses and Joshua more personally. And so... He sent Aaron and the 70 elders back down to tend to the people. In Exodus 32, the Bible says in verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not or we know not what has become of him. Ladies and gentlemen, now, now the people are putting pressure upon the one leader to give in and to compromise. And instead of Aaron standing on his own two hind legs and saying, absolutely not, we're not going to make an idol. It wasn't an idol that brought us up out of Egypt. It is God that brought us up out of Egypt. I want to ask, why is there such a desire for men to worship man-made images instead of the one true God? Why? 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 Why are there idolaters in this auditorium tonight? Why? Why? You worship money, or maybe you worship men, or maybe you worship media, or maybe you worship a, a, a host of other things. Why is it that there is such a propensity in our hearts to wander from the worship of the one true God to worship false gods? Why? Why? Well, there's false gods everywhere. Some people worship the saints. Some people worship false gods and call them Allah. Some people worship false gods and call them Buddha. Some people worship false gods and call them by the names of the myriad of Hindu gods. Why? Why is there such a propensity to worship? false gods. Why? Do you know why? Because if we worship a God we've made, there's no accountability. There's no such thing as judgment. There's no such thing as having to answer to God if we worship a God that we have made. Now, in fact, make no mistake, there is such a thing as judgment. But if we are deceived enough to follow and worship a false God, why? We're going to have it in our mind that, that we don't need to worship the one true God. Just last July, I stood in the island city country of Singapore. I walked down the streets of Singapore and into a temple to Buddha that is enshrined, allegedly, one of his teeth. It's a temple around his tooth. I walked into an elevator and took the elevator up two or three flights and walked into a very, quote-unquote, sacred room where I had to take my shoes off and walk on red carpet into a room that had an airtight, um, airtight uh, chamber that had his tooth about that big. And it was surrounded by gold. And people give millions upon multiplied millions to that baloney. Why? Because if they bow down and worship the tooth of some, some false prophet and some false god, they won't have to answer to the one true God. I went down the street to the oldest Hindu temple, the oldest Hindu temple in all of, of Singapore. I took my shoes off to show respect. I walked inside and there they began to play their music. And there were probably two or three hundred people that crowded in. They crowded in to get close to the God. I find that interesting. <laughs> when they played the music, people weren't looking to get to the back row or looking to get to the fastest way out of church. They were looking to get up as close as they could to see and to hear their gods. Well, they didn't say anything. Why? They had lips that couldn't move. They couldn't see anything because they have eyes that couldn't see. They couldn't hear anything because they have ears that cannot hear. They're man-made. And there was a God on one side and a God on the other and some priest, two priests, 
One tended to the needs of one God and one tended to the needs of the other. It would be as if we were in a chamber like this and there would be a priest on this side and a priest on that and everybody crowded up as the Middle Eastern music began to play and that one priest began to ring a bell and as he rung a bell, he would pass fire in front of the God. Then he would wash the God and then he would feed the God and then he would pour milk on the God and provide it something to drink and then he would bathe the God and then he would clothe the God And I stood there and thought to myself, how pitiful that people have to worship a God that can't even care for itself, let alone those that are worshiping it. Now, I'm going to tell you, if you worship idols and it doesn't just mean you bow down to a tooth or bow down to something that looks like Jabba the Hutt off of Star Trek, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. You can worship a myriad of other things if you bow down and worship idols or give your devotion to anyone other than the one true God. You're a fool. An absolute two-bit fool. I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but by the grace of God, I'd like to wake someone up tonight. What a foolish thing to bow down to something that has eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear. What a foolish thing to give our devotion to anyone and everyone but the one God who is alive and who came to this earth to die and rescue us from hell and is alive right now and longs for and is pleading with everyone in this room to come to Jesus Christ. What a foolish thing. What a foolish thing. I'm going to tell you, that's what they wanted they said, Aaron, make us gods. Look what Aaron said in compromise, Exodus 32, 2. Aaron said unto them, break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said... These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Now, I don't have time tonight, but I'm going to tell you, I don't believe Aaron expected the people to take his compromise as far as they did. I think he wanted them to bring their golden earrings and he thought, maybe I can buy some time before Moses comes down. But Moses didn't come down, so he made a golden calf. And he didn't say, but they said, these be thy gods. So Aaron began to backpedal in verse number five. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation, proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. You know what Aaron did? Aaron said, "Uh oh, uh oh. The people are taking this thing too far. So he built an altar before the Lord. He said, tomorrow we'll worship the Lord. Maybe he thought he could bring them back. But when you compromise, it's a whole lot harder to regain ground. And the next day he got up, he brought offerings and sacrifices and they worshiped the Lord. And you know what else they did? They worshiped the golden calf and they took off their clothes and they committed immorality and they danced to their rock music. The Bible says the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the idea behind the word play is is lewd and vile. And you know what? There were two little boys that were watching their dad that day. Maybe two teenage boys following and listening more to what their dad did than to what their dad said. And years later, when it came time for them to perform the service of the Lord, perhaps their mind went back to Exodus 32 and they disregarded God because of dad's example. Go back to Leviticus 10 and look what happens. Verse 2, after they offered the strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not, There went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto the Lord, unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Do you know what happened? Here they come with their strange fire. Watch it. 
Here they come offering their strange fire. And all of a sudden, there's fire that comes out from before the Lord and kills Nadab and Abihu. And they drop dead in the tabernacle. And I wonder if they're, thri- if they're throbbing with pain and if they're convulsing in their very last breath as they whisper, Daddy, don't drag me to hell by your wrong devotion. Tell me you love God, sir, and never read the Bible. Tell me you love God and never read the Bible with your family. Tell me you love God and only attend church every once in a while. Tell me and tell your kids that you love God and yet you curse his name. Tell me and tell your kids that you love God and you watch things on TV that you know displease the Lord Jesus Christ. Tell me you love God and yet you're living for a passion and unabated passion for the almighty dollar, which doesn't seem to be so mighty these days. Tell me you love God and yet you don't serve him and your children never see you by example living for him. Daddy, daddy, don't drag me to hell by your wrong devotion. Time would not permit us. But, you know, if we took time tonight, we would look at first Samuel chapter four and verse number 10. You can turn there first Samuel four and verse 10. In first Samuel four and verse 10, there is another grave site. Somebody else dies. In fact, two sons. First Samuel four and verse 10. And the Philistines fought in Israel was smitten and they fled every man from his tent. And there was a very great slaughter for their fellow of Israel, 30,000 footmen. And the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. You know, the Bible makes it very clear that Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were wicked men. First Samuel chapter number 2, the Bible says in verse 12, Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. You said, preacher, they were priests. They didn't know the Lord, yet they were priests. That's right. They didn't know the Lord, and yet they were priests. And I'll guarantee you there's some preachers in Fairfax County that are preachers nonetheless, and yet they don't know the Lord. And so the Bible here says that they knew not the Lord. Do you know there were two marks about these priests? They were money-grubbing priests. They took more than rightfully belonged to them. And if anyone withstood them, they would take it by force. Number two, they were immoral priests. They would openly commit immorality with the women of that day. They would commit immorality. And when anybody withstood them, they would, they would stand in unabated rebellion against God. And God said, all right, I'm going to take their life. But why? Now the Bible says that the ark of God was slain or stolen by the Philistines. Now the Bible says Hophni and Phinehas were slain. And you know they had a child on that day. One of their wives had a child on that day. They named that child Ichabod. Is there anybody here named Ichabod? <laughs> you know what Ichabod means? The glory hath departed. You know, we thought of a lot of names when it came time to name Andrew, but Ichabod wasn't one of them. The glory has departed. But you know why the glory had departed? Because the blessing of God had been lifted from Israel and was for an entire book. I wonder why. You know what I hear from the lips of Hophni and Phinehas as they die by a Philistine arrow on a Philistine battlefield? I hear them crying, Daddy, don't drag me to hell by your worthless discipline. Look, please, at 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. First Samuel chapter three. Notice what the Bible says in first Samuel three and verse number 13. It says, for I have told him God is speaking of Eli that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth because his sons made themselves vile and he restrained them not. Look this way. Look this way. Young people, do you know why God judged Eli's household? Because he did not do his part to stand up against sin. Now listen to me carefully because I'm not someone with a great deal of experience. I've only been a dad for seven years, seven and a half years or so. But I can tell you I had a dad that honored God and there certainly is a Bible that tells us how. And ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you that, that as a dad, there's a great responsibility placed upon me. Why? Because someday I'm going to stand before God for my wife and for my children. 
And do you know, the Bible says that Eli did not restrain his sons, though he knew their sin. Listen to me carefully. I'm not talking about some parent in this room and trying to put a guilt trip on you because of a prodigal son or daughter who by their own will has violated God's word. I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you. If you have a a son or a daughter who has exercised their will and violated God's word, you keep looking down the road and you keep waiting and you keep longing and you keep praying that they'll come back home. And don't you give up and don't you give in on your prodigal son or daughter. But I'm talking about parents who know about their kids and know that they're doing wrong and they do nothing to stand against it. That's sin. And the Bible here says that he had worthless discipline, worthless discipline. You, you say the Bible says, chasten my son while there is hope. You say, preacher, do you mean you believe in spanking? Yes. You said, preacher, when should we spank a little girl? Well, I don't know if I can speak to that. I don't have any experience in that area. Maybe wait until she gets home from the hospital. But as far as a little boy, maybe you should start before you leave the hospital. (laughs) I'm not really sure as to the exact timing. Now, what's my point? My point is this, that we need to chasten our children. We need to apply the board of understanding to the seat of learning. I'm not talking about the two extremes here. The one extreme says that we're going to beat our children. I'm against that. I'm not talking about that. Listen to me, Dad. You ought never lift a fist against your child. Never. That is wicked and cowardly and less than a snake's belly. You ought never lift a fist against your child. You ought never smack your child across the face. Never. That is wicked and that is abuse. And that is something that is done in anger and not under the control of the Holy Spirit. Used to preacher, then should we spank our children? Yes. And there's a padded posterior place that is perfect for it. It's called the seat of learning. And you need to take a board of understanding and apply it to the seat of learning. You said, preacher, when should we discipline? You should discipline for three, three specific areas. Number one, in our home, we discipline for disobedience. We do not tolerate disobedience. Number two, we discipline for deception. We're not going to tolerate a lie. Number three, we discipline for disrespect. We don't want any disrespect in our home. Now, again, we're not perfect and we're still learning in this thing. But if we don't discipline, do you know what we're doing? Literally dragging our children to hell. Dragging our children straight to hell. Daddy, daddy, don't drag me to hell by your worthless discipline. You know why I know Eli offered worthless discipline? Because when he came to his sons while they were old, he didn't say, sons, what are you doing that's wrong? He said to them, why are you doing this? You shouldn't do this. And he basically gave them a slap on the wrist when he could have removed them from being priests. He was the high priest. He had the authority. He wasn't interested in them getting right. All he was interested in was appeasing them. I want to say, it's not my job to be my boys, buddy, buddy, friend, friend. Now, I want to be his friend and I want all my boys to be friends of mine. But you know what my goal is? To be their dad. And to give them the discipline and leadership and direction and instill in their their lives character that I alone can give them. And if I don't, and if I give it all to their mom to do, or I give it all to somebody else to do, it's not going to be done the right way. And literally, if I take one extreme of total passive parent or the other extreme of abusive parent, I am exercising worthless discipline and dragging my children to hell. If I don't discipline them, I'm no better than the lady in Texas who drowned all her kids. And if you don't discipline your child, neither are you. The Bible says you will save his soul from hell if you discipline your child. Daddy, don't drag me to hell by your worthless discipline. One final passage and we're through. Back, please, to Exodus. Will you turn there? Back, please, to the book of Exodus. Exodus. In the word of God. Exodus chapter 12. And verse 29. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 29. Daddy, don't drag me to hell by your worldly desire. Daddy, don't drag me to hell by your wrong devotion. Daddy, don't drag me to hell by your worthless discipline. Number four, I can hear the cry of one young man. Pharaoh's oldest son. God had warned Pharaoh through his servant Moses that he was going to come through and destroy all the oldest, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. 
And you know, Pharaoh disregarded God's word. God kept his promise. Notice Exodus 12, 29. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne. Under the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of cattle. How many of you are the oldest sibling, oldest child in your family? Look around. Hold your hand up high, please. Hold your hand up high. You're the oldest in your family. Look around. If you were Egyptians who disregarded God's law, everyone with their hand raised would have been dead on this night. Exodus 12 and verse 30, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Now, I don't know, but I wonder if this was God's judgment against Pharaoh or the former Pharaoh for killing all those who were two years old and younger. But the fact remains that God had given Pharaoh ample warning. And are you listening to me? I believe all the way to the end, if Pharaoh had killed a lamb, taken the blood and put it on the doorpost and on the lintel, shut the door and stayed inside his firstborn would have been spared. I'm a dad and I know what it is to have a firstborn. And I love all of my boys equally, but there's just something about your firstborn. Just something about that firstborn child. I can't imagine anything happening to any of my children, but my firstborn? Now Pharaoh's firstborn is dead. Do you know what I can hear him whispering in his last waking breath? Daddy! Daddy! Drag me to hell by your willful defiance. Do you know, ladies and gentlemen, if there was no reason on earth for me to get saved, it would be this. If I didn't get saved, more than likely my four boys would follow my defiant footsteps straight into the pit of hell. And I wonder if I'm speaking to a man here or a woman or even an older brother or sister who has influence and other people are following you and you have no idea but that they may follow you straight to hell by your defiance against God's word. Daddy, don't drag me to hell. I'm not asking you as a preacher. I'm asking you to listen to the cries of your children. They want to know the truth. They want to know the difference between right and wrong. They want you to be their teacher. They want you to show them the way. They want you to tell them how to get to heaven. They want you to tell them what the Bible says. They want you to teach them the right way and not ignore it altogether. Daddy, don't drag me to hell. Did you know a statistic was taken some time back that, that if the child in, or the mom in the home gets saved, first, 17% of the time the rest of the family gets saved. If a child in the home gets saved first, 31% of the time the rest of the family gets saved. If a dad gets saved first, 93% of the time the rest of the family trusts Christ as their Savior. You know what we ought to be aiming at? Dads. And dads, you know what you ought to be aiming at? God. I want to ask you, sir, are you lifting your children to heaven or are you dragging them to hell? Daddy, don't drag me to hell. Would you bow with me in prayer?